Now, I'm glad I haven't got the really tricky ones. Someone else has got those. That's the historical theology ones. So I thought that we'd been, because the topic is tricky, I thought that we'd start by uh, my telling you some stories. I thought that would be a good way into it. And the story I want to start off with comes from the 5th century BC, and most of you will recognise the story. The location is the ancient city of Babylon. It's a city that Jews associate with opposition to God. It's a city that has false views about God. It's full of false gods, full of idolatry. Um, and in this city, there are three Jewish men. And uh, they are firm believers in the true God. And their names are, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, let me introduce you as well to the king of Babylon. Uh, the king of Babylon, is, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most powerful men the world has ever seen up until this point in history. He is really a very able young man. And uh, he has conquered large sections of the known world. And God has used him to punish his people for their idolatry. That is not Nebuchadnezzar's people, but God's own people. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his uh, exploits, has brought some Jews to Babylon. And some of them are faithful to their God. They include Daniel. They include Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, let's get back to the story, though. And uh, you see, what happened was this. One day, King Nebuchadnezzar decided that he would set up this immense statue on the plain of Dura. It was grotesquely tall, and it was plated with gold, and it was clearly idolatrous. And having built this thing, the, the king then turned on this massive great party, and uh, everyone was invited. If you were important, you were to go. And there were people from every known nation that uh, was around Babylon, dignitaries from every part of society were there, every nation represented in the city came, all of them. And it was a great occasion. And Nebuchadnezzar's herald, in the, at the beginning of it, lifted up his voice and boomed out this announcement. People of every tongue and nation, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the flute, lyre, um, zither, harp, drum, every other kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. So you remember the story, don't you? And so it happened. All the dignitaries, they fell down and they worshipped this image of God. But not Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They knew that they could not have any part in these sort of silly games of idolatry. And uh, they could not join in the stupidity of going with the great ones of the world bowing and scraping to a lump of gold just set out on the, on the plane. And they were believing in the true God, you see. And all of their life, they had learned the commandments. They had been taught the commandments. And above all, they had been taught the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 was very clear. It was categorical. It allowed no compromise. It said... Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. 
What Nebuchadnezzar was asking was therefore, for believers in God, an impossibility. They could not do it. They would not do it. And so they said no to Nebuchadnezzar. And they were asked to pay for their disobedience. They were thrown into this blazing fiery furnace. And as it happened, God rescued them from the fiery furnace. God saved them from its heat. But I want to tell you that in the years to come, God did not save other faithful Jews. Other faithful Jews died horrible deaths because they too said no to idolatry. No to worshipping any other God but the real God. They died for their beliefs. Many were tortured with incredible tortures. But they held on to their faith. They would not let go of the fundamental truth of God that they had learned, which is, the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. Friends, if you were a Jew in the first century, you knew those stories. You knew them. You loved them. Your parents taught them to you on their knees. You knew this truth. It is what made you Jewish. You lived in a world of, a, of multiple gods, but you would have nothing of it. You worshipped one God and one God alone. It is what made you Jewish. And when Jesus appeared on the scene, every Jew listening to him knew it and affirmed it. With that in mind, turn with me to Mark chapter 12 and look at verse 28. Now I'm reading from a slightly different translation that some of you will have. I've just been experimenting with it for a while, so you can put up with me doing that. Uh, it's the Holman Christian Standard Bible, uh, which I've been tinkering with. That is, I think it's a good translation, but uh, I, the only way to test a translation is to use it. So that's what I'm doing. So I want you to notice what it says. Look at verse 28. Uh, remember the, the background. A scribe has been listening to Jesus' teaching, and he comes to Jesus and he asks them, asks him this question. Which command is the most important of all? That is, what is this, what is the great commandment? And Jesus answers and he uses the words with the slight amendment from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Friends, I want you to hear this and I, want to, I need to emphasize it very strongly. This is the touchstone of Jewish faith. It is there in the Old Testament. It is there in the stories of God's faithful people. It is on the lips of Jesus. God is one. And it's there that I want to start. There is only one true God, and He is one. There is only one true God, and He is one. But now, I want you to imagine something else. I want you to imagine a group of 12 men. Uh, these 12 men have uh, some things in common. First, these 12 men are all Jews. That is, they are believers in one God. They know Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. They know the stories of the faithful. The second thing in common that they have is that they have all met a new prophet. And they have met this prophet Jesus and they have been called to follow him. Now let me tell you just a little bit about uh, what these men saw over a three year period. 
Remember, this is just three years of the life of ministry, three years in the life of 12 disciples. What did they see? Let me just try and summarize it for you. Uh, they saw a man who was heralded by other incredibly able prophets. Men like John the Baptist pointed out this prophet and they said he was God's appointed person. You remember that in the ministry of John the Baptist? They saw, and then these 12 men also saw other things. They saw unclean spirits bow down before this man and obey him. They saw Jesus dispel illness and heal people as though he were God himself. They saw Jesus uh, arguing with, re with religious leaders and teaching them like they were in kindergarten and just confounding the religious leaders of his day. They saw Jesus walking past them on the Sea of Galilee, some, I think it's about six kilometres from dry land. Just walking. Like God walking on the surface of the deep, as we're told he does in the book of Psalms. They saw him feeding a multitude of people out of some scraps that a little boy had brought for his lunch. In other words, they saw this man Jesus feed the people of God like God himself had done in the wilderness back in Exodus. They saw this man raise people from the dead. Now some of these things had been done by other people, but no one had ever seen anyone do all of these things. And some of the things had never been done by anyone except God alone, except God himself. And then they heard this Jesus prophesying his own death burial, resurrection, and they saw the statements he made being fulfilled to the letter. They saw him die. They saw him carried down from the cross. They buried him. And then after three days, they saw him alive. And these are just some of the things that the twelve disciples saw. I just read through Mark's Gospel and largely just summarised Mark's Gospel for you. That's what they saw. These and others must have raised incredible things in the minds of these men. Remember, these Jewish men, these monotheists, these believers in one God. But these men didn't just see things. They also heard things. And there, there were various different categories of what they heard. First, they listened to God's actual words about Jesus. So take a look with me, if you can, in Mark chapter 1 verse 9. So Mark 1 at verse 9. And I'll read, uh, I'll read from verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. And as soon as he came out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, I take delight in you. Now, friends, please take note. This is God speaking. This is God speaking personally to a particular person. But I want you to notice some things. Notice that Jesus has not done anything yet. That is, he hasn't done any great works. He hasn't healed. He hasn't preached. He hasn't died. But now look at what God says about him. God says that this man is his beloved son. This man is the son of his love. Now that could be the language of kingship in the Old Testament. 
And it is. But it is also a statement of fact. God loves this man. <coughs> and he tells him that. And God loves this man. And he lets other people listen in to what he's got to say to him. And he lets other people listen in to God saying, I love you. You are my loved son. And God makes, uh, calls this uh, man his son in the hearing of other people. God makes this statement and lets others listen to this incredible declaration. This is my son. Now listen to the second half of the statement. For it goes on, in the second half God declares that he takes great delight in him. And again, this is undoubtedly the language of the Old Testament and the commentators will tell you it has echoes of Isaiah 42. The great danger though is you don't actually hear what's being said because you're listening for the prophets all the time and not actually hearing the statement. It's a statement of fact. God says, I delight in this man and I want to tell him. <coughs> God is telling this man of his great delight in him. God is so pleased. No, in fact, God is delighted in the son of his love and doesn't mind other people hearing what he has to say about him. He loves his son. The disciples hear these words from God. That's one of the incredible things that they hear. Can you imagine what it must have been like for these Jewish men to hear God's thunder from heaven and say, this is my beloved son, I'm delighted in him. What would you start thinking about this man? Words of sonship, words of love, words of delight. But now, turn to Mark chapter 9. <coughs> Jesus takes three of his disciples, so they haven't got the whole twelve, we've just got to them. And he goes up to this high mountain, and something happens, and uh, he's transformed or transfigured or changed in some way before them. His clothes become dazzling white, and Elijah and, Elijah, Elijah and Moses appear, and they chat with Jesus. Uh, that, that is, in one sense, the representative of the, of the prophets and the representative of the law stand chatting to this man. And uh, in verse 5, Peter seems to sort of capture the three together in some sort of structure, but God speaks. And his words are awesome. They're, they're very directive. God reiterates what he said back in Mark chapter 1. He says, this is my son. This is the son of my love. This is my beloved son. And then he adds something. I want you to notice this, because again, we, we often pass over this and don't notice what is being said. The God, God who says that humans don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, now says... <coughs> Listen to the words that come from my son. See, it's an astounding statement when you think about it in that way, isn't it? He's saying, you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Listen to the mouth of this person. Listen to this one. In other words, God, I think, is saying that the words of his son are the words to pay attention to. Now, there are other words from God that... Uh, that are directed toward Jesus that we can listen to in the New Testament. For example, you can find them in uh, John chapter 12, verse 28, and other places. 
But these are, this is enough for our purposes. There are also, you'll find in the New Testament, conversations between God and Jesus. Two-way conversations. You can look at them, for example, in John chapter 17. But these are enough for our purposes. What I want to say from them, what I want you to hear, is what these men heard God say about his son. You see, they not only saw what Jesus did, they also heard from God about Jesus. But there's another category of things that they heard, and we're going to turn to them now. Now let's turn to the teaching of Jesus. And again, I've just put these together from Mark's Gospel and from John's Gospel, and you can do exactly the same thing yourself, but I'm just going to take a run through them. So let me just tell you. They heard Jesus declaring that he could forgive sins just as God did. He could forgive sins just as God did. They heard him say that he, the Son of Man, was Lord of the Sabbath. That's a massive claim, isn't it? But he's saying it. They heard him using words about himself that only God used about himself. They heard him telling storms to cease, and they did. Say to me, be silent, and the seas quieted down. They heard him citing so many Old Testament scriptures and claiming that he was the one to whom they all pointed. He said that he would be the one on whom the angels of God ascended and descended. That's John chapter 2, the end of John chapter 1. In other words, he's saying, I am going to be the place of contact between God and the world. I'm going to be the ultimate revealer of God. He identified himself with the temple. Now, again, do you know what it is to identify yourself with the temple? You are saying that you are the place where God is going to dwell with humanity. Because that's what the temple was all about. That Jesus was really identifying himself with the temple. He said, destroy this body and in three days I'll raise it up. You know, this temple in three days I'll raise it up again. The disciples heard him saying that he was from, from heaven and therefore above all. He was the one who spoke about the things he had seen. John 3, 31 to 32. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've seen things and I'm telling them to you now. I've seen things in heaven. The disciples heard him say that he was sent from God and that he spoke God's words and that he gives the Spirit without measure. John 3, verse 34. More than that, Jesus asserted that what God himself had said was that he was the Son of God and that he, God, loved him. But he went on and said that God had given all things into his hands. I mean, that's a massive claim in a service, isn't it? He's saying, God has given everything to me for me to do with as I will. It's in my hands. Once when he was arguing with the Jews in John 5, the disciples heard Jesus say that he does things in the same way as the Father does. John 5, verse 19. Not only that, they heard him say that he had the same ability as God has to give life to anyone he wants to give it to. He's saying, I can give life where I want to. God's given me that authority. Moreover, he said he judges in God's name. 
And God's intention is that all people will honour the Son as they honour the Father. John 5.23 In a debate with the Jews uh, in uh, John chapter 8, they also heard him identify himself with the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. He said to them, Before Abraham was, I am. He uses the name of the Lord that God had given Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. These are just a symbol of the teachings of Jesus. And again, to these monotheistic Jewish men heard them. One wonders what went on in their brains. <laughs> One wonders how they began to think about all of this. You know, they have incredible things to say to a Jewish man, aren't they? <coughs> to come from the lips of another Jewish man who's a monotheist like you. They're incredible things. So these are just some of the things the disciples saw, some of the things they heard, but then not only did they see things and hear things, they experienced things as well. Let me just summarize some of the things they experienced. Again, this is from the Gospels and from Acts. You see, we know from later writings that these men experienced salvation through Jesus. We know this because they told others the same sort of salvation was available to them as well. For example, John told people, do you remember this? That they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and that he is the perfect offering for all of their sins. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? That's John, one of these twelve men, declaring that they have an advocate, that there is one from God. John, uh, that, that he, this one is the propitiation for their sins, 1 John chapter 2. And Peter, again, another one of the twelve, spoke of being given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, if you're now Christians, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. That's Peter, one of the twelve. He said that you are those who who are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Salvation at the hands of Jesus. Elsewhere, Peter talks about salvation in terms of redemption. You see, even though he was a Jew, even though he knew the redemption that came through the Exodus, he also knew that every Christian had experienced a different redemption. A redemption that came through the cross. A redemption that came through Jesus. That being redeemed, says Peter, not with the blood of a little woolly Passover lamb. No. They have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter chapter 2. They experience salvation and redemption. But they also experience something else. Do you know what else they experience? Well, you see, after the death of Jesus and after his resurrection, they waited around in Jerusalem. And you know what's coming, don't you? You see, Acts chapter 2 says God poured out on them his Holy Spirit. They received the indwelling of God in the Spirit. And this indwelling showed itself in a multitude of different ways. Friends, I've deliberately painted this picture large for you in order to sort of try and give you what's going on. But I wonder if you can hear what I'm saying. 
these 12 men had the most dramatic, incredible experience, and let me repeat it again, they were good Jewish men. <coughs> they were good God Jewish men. And they met this man who did things and who confounded them. They, they, he said things that confused them and bewildered them. They experienced the incredible benefits of what he did for them. And these things that they saw and they heard and they experienced them, we know of as the gospel. See, look at Mark chapter 1. Look at how Mark 1 starts off. Well, look at how Mark starts off his gospel. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is the heading. It's like the, the sort of heading over the whole book that he's written. This is the beginning of the gospel. And then he proceeds to describe the life, teaching, death, resurrection of Jesus. And then he calls this the gospel. Because that's what it is, isn't it? It's the facts about Jesus. It is the gospel because it describes how God has brought salvation and redemption. Friends, the writings which we call the gospels are rightly called the gospels. They're not just the records of what Jesus did. They're the reflections of what the disciples saw, heard and experienced. Sometimes you might like to look up 1 John chapter 1 where John uses these exact words. He says, the things that we saw, we, we heard and we touched and so These are the things we tell you. Okay? So, even though Mark and Luke are not from the twelve disciples, they are clearly based on eyewitness accounts. The gospel accounts are eyewitness accounts of these events. Now, with that in mind, I want you to come with me yet again back to the gospels. And the gospels that I want to look at in particular are come from two original twelve disciples, Matthew and John. And we're fairly clear, we're fairly certainly clear. Okay, before we turn to Matthew 1, I want you to notice where Mark begins his gospel. So just find where in Mark still. Have a look at verse 1. He gives us his introduction. And then where does he go? He then turns to the ministry of John the Baptist. And then in verse 9, he looks at the baptism of Jesus. Then he looks at the temptation in verse 12. In other words, do you see where Mark starts? He starts where the disciples started. That's probably their first encounter with Jesus. One of those events. And uh, he starts where they started. He starts with the events that happened in Judea when Jesus first began his public ministry. 33 years of his life, there were 30 years of his life had passed at that particular point. Now turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Just turn to Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to look at how Matthew starts. See, he doesn't start with John the Baptist. No. It's clear that Matthew started to do some reflecting on the things that he'd seen and heard and experienced. He started to do some reflecting on the gospel events. And he wants us to know that, look, if you really want to understand these events, that is, if you really want to understand Jesus then you've got to go back further than John the Baptist to do it. You need to go back to the genealogy or the historical record of Jesus. And you need to start with Genesis 12 and Abraham at least. In other words, you need to start with God's plan of salvation for his people that began with the choice of Abraham. 
So back in the Old Testament, in fact, we're only put on about page, I don't know, 15 or 20 of the Old Testament. And in verse 6, Matthew tells us that this plan of salvation flows down through David, from Abraham through David. And then it tells us that this in turn ends with what, well, leads to what looks like a dead end in the exile. You see, the very kingship finished in the exile. But then verse 12 tells us, no, 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 it didn't. It didn't end there after all. It flows on past the exile. It ends up in verse 16 with the birth of a Davidic descendant, with Jesus <laughs> to Mary. And this Jesus was called, notice what he says, the Christ. And the word for Christ in Greek is the Hebrew word for Messiah. Friends, can you see what Matthew's saying? He's saying, look, if you really want to understand Jesus, if you really want to know what the events of the gospel mean, then you need to go back at least to his birth. But you may need to go back even further than that. You need to go back at least to Abraham to understand exactly what this is all about. However, not even that's enough. You see, you may even need to go back further. Do you see what Matthew's doing? He's going back further and further and further to try and understand what's going on with Jesus. But now I want you to turn to John chapter 1. Now I want to tell you that in John chapter 1, John does mention John the Baptist, just like Mark, just like Matthew. But I want you to notice where he starts. It is phenomenal. Look at his first words, he says, In the beginning. If you know your Bible, you know this is the very first, the very first book of the Bible begins. In the beginning. So John's taking us back even further. Matthew, isn't he? We started with John the Baptist in Mark's Gospel. Now we've gone back to Abraham in Matthew's Gospel. Now we've gone back at least to Genesis 1 in John's Gospel. And that's what we think at first, don't we? We're starting at Genesis 1. Look at how it goes on. This is absolutely astounding. In the beginning, it's the word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in, with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. And life was in Him, and that light was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not overcome it. Can you hear what He is doing? He's saying, if you really want to understand the Jesus I'm about to present to you in these coming pages, if you really want to understand who he is and what he has done, then you need to go back even further than Abraham, even further than Genesis 1, further back than any human being who appeared during the ministry of John the Baptist, further back than Jesus, who is the Messiah, the physical descendant of David, Israel's promised king, further back than that. You need to go back to the very beginning. And when you do, you will find the word. It's clear that John's speaking about Jesus still, isn't it? You'll find the word. Not the human Jesus, but the person who became the human that we know of as Jesus. And this person was the word. And in this state, 
he was with God. In fact, he was God. And he was the agent of creation. Life was in him. He was the agent of life and the life of men. And his coming into the world was the coming of life and life. Prince John's reflections on Jesus have gone a long, long way back, haven't they? And I'm not sure that we quite realise how profound this is. You see, the man doing this, doing this reflecting, is a strict monotheist. But as he reflects on Jesus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he recognises he must go even further. And what we have seen, what he heard, what he experienced, the gospel itself drives him even further back. It drives him back into the midst of time immemorial. It drives him back before the birth and into eternity past. And it drives him to an incredible theological conclusion about Jesus. Look at verse 18. What an amazing statement from the Jewish monotheist. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. And friends, I want you to recognise that what John says here arises from the deeds and the teachings of Jesus. It is consistent with what Jesus said about Himself. John has drawn the same some theological conclusion, conclusions based on the person and the teaching of Jesus. They are conclusions about Jesus that demonstrates that he is divine. Now friends, I hope that the way I've presented my material demonstrates this to you. Have it just to prove my point. Let me show you something. Look at Matthew chapter 28. Verse 19. I'll read from verse 18, where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, do you notice the singular name? There is one name under which the disciples are to be baptized. And that one name has three persons attached to it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is clear that Jesus has not stopped being a monotheist. And yet he talks about himself in the same breath as he talks about the Father and the Holy Spirit. Friends, Jesus and John have travelled a long way, haven't they? The Gospel has now driven us into Trinitarian reflection. We've now come to the three persons being talked about in the same breath. And the original disciples of Jesus continue their theological reflection. I've given you some examples in the headings in your notes, although if you look at Revelation 4 and 5, that's incredible. Because in Revelation 4, you have God worship is created. And in Revelation 5, the slaughtered but risen lamb worship is redeemed. 
and are put almost in the same. They're just put together. And they are true. And John has no problems in recognising that this dream from God represents the truth. Or this vision from God. You can also find it in 1 John chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. So I've put the whole passage there, which is not in your notes. But I want to show you one piece. Chapter 1. So turn with me to 1 Peter. Just as I've said to you before, this is... Um, this is a statement from, uh, probably, from the Peter that we know as one of the twelve. It arises from what he saw and heard and experienced. It's a statement that arises out of the Gospel. It is full of the Gospel and it is full of Trinity. Look at it there. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The princess is my memory verse for the next day. That is, I want you at least to to try and memorise this verse. Now, in case remembering all those names at the front is going to be a bit difficult for you, you can try it from the word chosen. Just remember from the word chosen. So remember this. Try and memorise it, because it's great. It's a great Trinitarian statement. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and set apart by the Son for obedience and for spreading with the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, now just keep in mind, time what time do we need to finish right? Okay, I think we'll make it. Now, I worked you really hard this morning, so you're doing well. But so now let's try and draw it all together. Let's summarise what we've done. We've recognised, haven't we, that the early disciples were strict monotheists. And nothing they saw in Jesus or heard from Jesus deterred them from being monotheists. They remained that. They were believers in one God. And yet, they also came to believe that Jesus was divine. And they believed that the Holy Spirit was divine. And all of this arose from the Gospel about Jesus. And it was natural that those who followed after Jesus continued to reflect on just how this worked out. For example, I want you to look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. So 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Paul says, Just as for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from Him, and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him, and we exist through Him. It's now an amazing statement for an ex Harrison to make. Let me tell you, it's, it's even, I think it's probably even more startling than our English versions can be. Because the word for Lord only has one way of presenting itself really uh, in Greek. But the word Lord, of course, we know of as Yahweh from the Old Testament. We did the same sort of translation. And perhaps the only way to translate Yahweh into 
Greek would be used the term Lord. And imagine if this is really what Paul is saying. Yes, I suspect it is what he's saying. And just for us, there is one God the Father. All things are from him. Yet for us there is one God the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Yahweh, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. And however, if that's how to read it, that's even more startling, isn't it? But can you see what he's doing? He's saying, I'm a monotheist, and I have a Lord Jesus Christ who's also divine. And those two things are true. They're, and there were not only the original disciples, the apostles, and those who wrote the New Testament scriptures who began to do reflecting, but there were those who followed them and read their works. For three or four centuries they spent grappling with this. That is, Christians can't quite work out how this could all work. They say this is an incredible mystery. Perhaps that we can't ever explain in words, but it is true. I developed a doctrine of the Trinity that flowed from Scripture. And those who developed it recognised that it could not fully be explained. However, they also recognise that there are boundaries that could be drawn. And I want to show you one diagram that expresses those boundaries. And now we're going to try and make it right. This should be there. Somewhere. There we are. There's a, a, a very, it's a fairly, sorry those of you who can't see it, but it's a fairly well-known diagram. Uh, there is God. Here are the things to both deny and affirm. So these are boundaries for thinking about the Trinity. And uh, they're summarised in text form later on for you in the notes I saw. But uh, there is God. There is the Father. There is the Son. There is the Spirit. The Father is not the Son, nor is the Father the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father, nor is the Spirit the Son. The Son is not the Father, and nor is the Son the Spirit. However, each one is God. Be good boundaries, okay? Every time you cross one of those boundaries, you're in trouble. Okay, so were you to say, well, you know, God is only the Father, you've got a problem. Because that's not true. God is the Son. God is the Spirit. Okay, does that make sense? So these are good boundaries to draw. Now let me also show you, and again, you can look it up in uh, later on in the back of your book, but the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is a Trinitarian statement. It covers God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Look at what it says, and uh, those of you who are Anglicans, probably if you go to communion, you'll say this. Okay? So let's just have a look at it. We believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and, that is, we also believe, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and he shall, shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And then next, and we believe in 
the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That's the end of 350 years of reflection and argument. That's how long you can spend thinking about the Trinity if you like. Mm-hmm. And you'd still have to have baptisms. You see, because don't think for a moment that what these men are trying to do is just come with a form of words so you can understand the Trinity. They understand that God in the end, in his wonderful being cannot fully be explained with human words. So you've sort of got to put boundaries so you can say what can't, what, what must be said without realising at the same time that there's lots more that could be said but perhaps words may not be the best way to do them. So they really grappled with the mystery of God as well as the things could be said about God. Now, last thing I want to do this morning is to reflect on your own experience of being Christian. What I want you to do is use the diagram I'm giving you in your notes. The other little diagram that looks like concentric circles or ellipses or whatever. First thing I want to say is if you are Christian, then you are Christian because you've come to believe the gospel. That is true, isn't it? You cannot be Christian without believing the gospel. That is, you've come to believe that through his death, Jesus has saved you. That he's reconciled you to God. That he's adopted you as God's child. That is who you are. Now, if you're saved, it's naturally you do some reflecting upon this. It's right and appropriate to do reflecting. You see, it's done within the New Testament itself. And the first bit of reflecting you do is to ask yourself, how is it that Jesus is able to bring about my salvation? How can that be possible? The second bit of reflecting you do is to ask yourself, how on earth is Jesus, what is it about Jesus that makes him capable of saving like this? And the third bit of reflecting is to say, hang on a moment, I've taken on a lot about Jesus now. What must God be like if these things are true about Jesus? What what must God really be like if all of this is true? That is, if I'm a saved person, I'm saved through Jesus and his work on the cross. I'm saved through him becoming a human being. What must God be like if all of those things are true? All of these steps of theological reflection have names, and you notice I've put into little brackets there in your diagram, you might like to fill in the names for them. They are these. The doctrine of theological reflection on salvation is called soteriology. S-O-T-E-R-I-O-L-O-G-Y. The doctrine of salvation. Uh, the doctrine of theological reflection on how Jesus saves is called the atonement. A-G-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. 
And the doctrine of theological reflection on how it is that Jesus is capable of being of saving is called the incarnation. That is God becoming a human being. The incarnation. And last of all, the doctrine of theological reflection on who God is that he can accomplish this is called the Trinity. Now, next thing I want you to notice. You notice how the lines in my little diagram, actually I've pinched it as you can see. The lines in this little diagram get thicker as you work out. That's because each step leads to the other one. For example, you can only be saved because of Jesus. And Jesus only is able to save you because he's fully God and fully man incarnation. And this depends on God being Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, can you see how that works? So we experience it from this end. But God, in one sense, is experiencing it, or experience is probably the wrong word. God, God is uh, knowing it from the other end and working out. The diagram also shows us that this whole, what this whole talk has been about. You saw the heading right at the beginning. And this is about the gospel. Our first contact with all of these great truths about God is what? The gospel. That's where we start. It's by the gospel that we come to be saved. This gospel introduces us to Jesus. And because we've come to know and love Jesus, we begin to explore everything else. And this will inevitably lead us to find out more about God. After all, you see, Jesus is here to introduce us to God. That's what he's here for. And to make us friends with God, to bring us into a relationship with God. And we have come to know and love this God. So we want to find out everything we can about him. And that opens up for us an eternal and never-ending adventure. For from God and through God and to God are all things. And to Him be glory for ever and ever. Amen. And if looking at the Bible, it's just a little take-off from Romans chapter 11, verse 36. From God and through God and to God are all things. To Him be the glory for ever. Amen. Well, thanks, friends. This is a, it's a busy couple of days. We've got lots of work to do, and uh, I think this is probably the longest of my talk. And I've got five minutes to spare. So, have our Father, we thank you that we can come to you. through your Son, by the mechanism of the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you so much for this. We thank you that you are Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Lord God, this day we worship you. We adore you and we confess that we love your Son. 
we love all that he has shown us about you. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.